Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from not too far from New York City. I'm joined today by three of our great friends to talk about what has recently transpired with the January 6th committee. Among them are Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia writes about the courts and the law for Slate and is the host of the Amicus podcast. How are you doing today, Dahlia? Uh... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. um, we're also joined by Harry Littman, who is the host of Talking Feds and legal affairs columnist for the LA Times. He's a former U.S. attorney. How are you doing today, Harry? I think I'm going to go with gobsmacked. And fortunately, given, you know, that both of them are gobsmacked, we have the unflappable Norm Ornstein. <laughs> Norm is Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a contributing editor for The Atlantic. Are you um, um, Norm, or are you gobsmacked? Well, if you said I'm unflappable, I'm flapped today. Uh, <laughs> flapped, yeah. Okay. If not today, we'd have to, you know, t- test his vital signs, right? Yeah, well, so obviously everybody is reacting to the... Uh, testimony today of Cassidy Hutchison. And I want to start with just a kind of a procedural question, and then we'll dive into a bunch of others. This was not a scheduled hearing. Dahlia, why was this hearing rushed into place? Does that make sense to you in retrospect? I mean, I think they are mortally worried about her life and limb. I think that she undertook to do something that will cause existential danger to her. And I think that was a part of it. I'm curious about whether she has spoken to the Justice Department and if she has who she's spoken to. And I think that my sense overwhelmingly is that this puts the screws to so many people who she named today who have not cooperated or who have lied, that this is, I think, the best mechanism to leverage, to surprise 
and leverage a whole bunch of people into cooperating. Harry, to whom and how does this put the screws to anyone? Well, for starters, Mark Meadows. For second, Mark Meadows. Meadows is her boss. He's chosen not to cooperate, and he's repeatedly put at the center of things with knowledge and something between indifference slash resignation and actual uh, endorsement of Trump's craziest views. So he is in a world, world, world of hurt. It puts the screws to cooperate to cooperate to Sip alone and Philbin, the two sort of good guys in the White House counsel's office, only because it's so stark and dramatic, it kind of frames up what side of history are you on. And then there are others, the uh, who, you know, the Secret Service guy driving the car, Tony Ornato. As Dahlia says, there is a, an array of people who are sweating it today, but really. First and foremost, Meadows. She was seemed very polite, not looking like she had an axe to grind, but she took in, on a couple occasions, including her kind of taxonomy of who was anywhere from opposed to completely okay. She she really did give it to Meadows pretty strongly and harshly. I, I think he and his very fine lawyer, George Terwilliger, are right now huddling frenetically, wondering whether they should try to play it with an open hand. And last thing to say is if they do, he's the most dangerous man in America for Donald Trump. So, Norm, in the midst of this uh, hearing, the former president put out a tweet that he's got to just have on repeat, which was, again, essentially, who dat? This, you know, coffee girl, and she was disgruntled, and she's a bad person. And it just called to mind the question, do you think the old Trump tactics are going to continue to work with the Trump base? Or is this series of hearings likely to change that? I think things are going to change. Before I get to that, David, let me add some more people who I think are in deep trouble right now, deeper trouble. Rudy Giuliani is right at the center of this seditious conspiracy. And when she said that Giuliani had been dropping names like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers right there, it says that he's in even deeper trouble now. And it won't be a pat on the back. It'll be something far more serious. Scott Perry, who's a member of Congress, who is also right in the thick of things. Jim Jordan has a lot of questions to answer. And keep in mind that Kevin McCarthy who may win the award for moral coward of the century, wanted to put Jordan on this committee, tells you volumes about the Republican Party and where it is. There are a lot more names there as well. I think what might happen now is that a lot more Republicans in leadership positions are going to start to get distance from Donald Trump. They know now that he could face devastation here that could have an impact on them. When Mitch McConnell, a close second for moral coward behind Kevin McCarthy, engineered it so that Donald Trump would not be removed from office, it was because, first and foremost, he wanted to preserve the strong possibility of Republicans recapturing the majority in the Senate. Once Republicans see Donald Trump as a weight around their necks, more than a protector for their ambitions. And this has nothing to do with suddenly 
come to Jesus moments that they realize how bad things were. It's all pragmatic. They will join with Asa Hutchinson in getting distance from him. And it is important for all of us to remember that if Donald Trump gets removed from this picture, if many more Republicans disown him, it does not in one slight way move away from the danger we face for 2024. They're going to try and do this again, but without a violent assault on the Capitol. They're going to try and do it with the connivance of the Alito court and people and state legislatures all around the country to steal an election. We're not out of the woods yet, no matter what happens to Donald Trump. And if he is not indicted on a variety of charges by the Justice Department, we're going to have a lot of questions to ask the Justice Department. It's true. And in the background of today, we had the Alito court stealthily leaving in place some very partisan gerrymandering in Louisiana. This is just the methodical drumbeat of how you steal a democracy or steal future elections without having to choke your Secret Service driver or throw food at the wall. Now, you know, I mean, I think there are a lot of dramatic elements to all of this, Dahlia. But I'll tell you what I was thinking. And, you know, I'd be interested in in your reaction. You know, I, I was watching it. I watched some of the talking head analysis afterwards. And this was shocking. It's absurd that it's a year and a half later. And it's taking this congressional committee with a tiny staff to go and to bring this into the public eye. There's been some recent evidence that suggests some of what this hearing is doing is actually prodding the Justice Department into some kind of action. And a bunch of people who analyze this who are thoughtful people are kind of like, well, it's really hard for the Justice Department to make these cases. And there's a lot of stuff to go through and all this. And and I'm like, we're watching TV there's a crime, we see the crime, and everybody who is a Republican working for the president who comes on the TV in the midst of this hearing reiterates that there was a crime, confirms that it was as bad or worse than we thought it was, and people still think it's hard. You know, I can only imagine the consequence after all of this, not for Trump as norm warrants, but for the country if DOJ doesn't do anything. How do you feel about that, Diane? I mean, at one level, David, I've been at the head of the pack saying if the DOJ doesn't bring legal accountability, there will not be political accountability. You know, DOJ has to lead because the American public has been through the impeachment and we know the story. I have to say, and I and I still really do desperately, desperately hope that what's going on in Georgia right now, in addition to whatever evidence the Justice Department is amassing, will lead to meaningful accountability because I I agree 100% with Norm. Barring accountability, this happens again. And it happens again, except it's not, you know, Rudy Giuliani on his seventh bourbon. It's white-shoed lawyers from good law firms making the same arguments. But I want to say one thing that was a slight epiphany to me today It occurred to me for the first time that in addition to this political story that we're trying to tell, in addition to this legal story that we're hoping uh, Merrick Garland is going to someday tell, I think the American public that is watching this is learning about the scheme. 
And I have to confess, going into these hearings, I thought there is no way you are going to explain what it means to have a ballot of fake electors handed off to the vice president. People are beginning to really understand what the racket was here. And I don't think that's of zero utility, because I do think if and when it happens again, the American public are going to say, hey, wait, you mean they're setting aside the state election results in order to try to goose this in the electoral college? I think that's wrong. And maybe that's just thin gruel, that that's the best I can come up with. But I've actually come to the kind of the viewpoint that it is not a terrible thing for the American public to get the sort of map, the roadmap of what John Eastman and Jeff Clark were planning to do so that if and when it happens again, and if and when the Alito court invokes the independent state legislature doctrine, people don't have to be brought up to speed because they recognize it. It almost happened before. Same question to you, Harry, about DOJ. Well, I'll just compare myself with Dahlia. I've been close to the end of the line if she was out front. And, uh, you know, understanding Garland's position, understanding a prosecutor's position, understanding the gravity of the unprecedented action against a former president, but eventually coming to the view that the only thing worse than prosecuting him would be not prosecuting him. Now, I do think that the evidence of criminal behavior became radioactive today, there'd been a lot of these questions. I've been, I, I've thought that the case against him in terms of the elements of uh, the federal principles of prosecution had been long since made and disagreed with many people who were tied in knots on the intent issue. But if in general, there had been a question of, did Trump know? What today seemed about was, of course he knew, but he fomented. I mean, it wasn't simply he knew violence could ensue. He stunningly objected to the marauders being subject to magnetometers. He said, these are my guys. I want them in because he wanted both big crowds and he wanted them around. He stunningly tells Mark Meadows that he agrees with the uh, rioters and not Mike Pence. And we should maybe hang Mike Pence. So in terms of a case Well, first, there were the two big charges that have been in play all the time. I think now seditious conspiracy might be in uh, play. Uh, Maybe the assault on the Secret Service officer, the the choking and the like. So he's got a lot to answer for criminally. But then it's, it's I think it is more than that. He's just got a lot to answer for politically, institutionally, psychologically, you know, in terms of the damage to the country. We found out again about a very serious effort, perhaps, to invoke the 25th Amendment with 16 days to go in the presidency. So the welter of reasons that I think Garland has to weigh, probably along with the White House, that could be summarized under the umbrella of, is this the best thing for the country? I think now have come more and more strongly to have a lopsided answer of fucking right it is. And in fact, as Norm says, if nothing's done, you know, I'm against having all the weight put on DOJ and thinking them as the source of accountability. I think it's really rests with us by and large. But nevertheless, if they walk from here, then it really is the rule of law doesn't apply to former presidents. You know, Norm, I don't know if you get this, but I I do know that you would like me periodically express frustration at DOJ and concern about this pace. 
and on several of the podcasts we've done on this and when I write stuff or tweet stuff, inevitably there is a torrent from a particular sort of group of people out there who go, well, if you were reading all the DOG paperwork in all of these cases, you would know they were hard at work on this case. And if you weren't such an idiot and you were reading all of these papers, then you know you would realize that Merrick Garland is completely on top of this and doing nothing is exactly what we should be seeing right now. And I think they've kind of lost the narrative here because I think what has happened is that somebody has gone back with videotape, and we haven't even seen this documentary film, and replayed the crime in slow motion for everybody over and over again. And every witness is a Republican. And it's like, no, not really. You know, if you really cared about democracy, this committee would be lagging where DOJ is, not leading where DOJ is. But Norm, where are you? So, I mean, let me start by saying I I know Merrick Garland pretty well. I have a lot of affection and respect for him. I know a lot of the other people in the top levels of the Justice Department. I feel the same way, but I have been uneasy. I think he started out saying we're going to do this by the book the way we usually do our investigations, which is slowly and methodically, and you start at the bottom levels and you move on up. We're not going to take into account the politics, but the problem is that you get yourself directly and immediately enmeshed in the politics and the timing of it. And it's going to be hard to avoid that. And taking this much time, if the House and or Senate go Republican with the elections in November, they will hound him and everybody else in the Justice Department mercilessly. They will cut off funds. They will do everything they can to block things from happening. Now, I'll give them this much credit. They have moved methodically. The fact that they brought seditious conspiracy charges, and we throw the term around, but it is a rare crime charged. It is extraordinarily serious against the Proud Boys, says they're moving in a good direction. When they move in and seize phones and and other devices, you don't do that without going to a judge, having probable cause that a crime has been committed. So they're moving up the ladder. But you can't stop at a Mark Meadows or a Rudy Giuliani or a Roger Stone. If you don't get the president, who we know now was deeply engaged in this for weeks, months, and maybe even longer. If you, you know, Harry mentioned, let them come in with the guns. We're going to take away the magnetometers. And then they're marching to the Capitol. This is great. I mean, he wanted people to die so he could declare, uh, invoke the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. He sent those people to the Defense Department so that they would tell the military, you go in and, uh, and do what the president has ordered. If you don't hold him to account, then it is an absolute catastrophe for the future of the country. That is my bottom line on this. And every day that we learn more about his disgusting behavior, I said, you know, George uh, Conway tweeted, this is what a uh, narcissistic sociopath will do. And my response was, I stopped calling him a sociopath and started calling him a psychopath with all of this. That's the reality that we have to face. And you have to let the American people know what he did, the gravity of what he did, why it matters, and what the stakes are. That's up to the Justice Department now. 
Di, I saw you nodding your head, and any question I have would undoubtedly cloud the issue. I want to make two quick points in response to what Norm said and what Harry said. I actually think one of the most interesting things that happened in today's hearing was the taxonomy of cowardice. You know, the three categories that she laid out of, and then she went ahead and slotted people into them conveniently, right? So we had the kind of helpful people. And then, you know, we had the, what she was calling the neutrals. And then we had the, what she called the deflect and blame contingent. And I think just going to, to, to Mark Meadows, it was really interesting that she said that Mark Meadows starts in defect and blame and then is inching toward the neutrals. And the reason, and I don't know if everybody else was as captivated by that as I was, and just the image of Mark Meadows sitting on his couch, doom scrolling while, you know, Rome is burning around him. I think one of the reasons that little taxonomy is so interesting is, first of all, even the people that she characterizes as the good guys have not come in and testified. With the exception of Hirschman, right? Nobody has talked. And so the best people that she has designated as the heroes have not spoken up. That's amazing. That tells you where the baseline is, right? But then I just think that the interplay between people who want to get out of bad categories and into good categories is one of the things to look toward here. I mean, Harry's right. Mark Meadows is just in a world of trouble. But if he wants history to remember him as at best a neutral, he's going to have to do something to redeem himself. Because otherwise, he's in the bucket with John Eastman and Jeff Clark and Rudy Giuliani. So I just think that, for me, I've been trying to think of the taxonomy of enablers and colluders and cowers. And she really laid it out today in a way that I think is both tragic because they're all enablers and cowards. But at least, I think, she laid out where movement might come between the categories and how people may want to save themselves. Okay, so I want to do, I want to look at this two ways, kind of like a movie director with two shots. I want to look at a wide shot and then I want to do a close up. We're not going to take a break in this episode because I haven't been doing that in these because I just think it's too important. And normally you take a break in the middle and say, go join and become a member. Or you can't hear the rest. Please go join and become a member. Listen to this. It's, it's good. But, but I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do that. But so, Harry, here's the wide shot. And this was one of the things that was clearer and clearer to me today. This conspiracy was massive, complicated, and longstanding. For months and months and months prior to the election, they thought, what do we do if we don't get enough votes? Then when they didn't, and, and they seeded the clouds with all sorts of doubt, right? Then when they didn't get enough votes, they began to try to throw results into question. And they did this in two different ways. In one way, they undertook a series of legal actions founded in nothing at all, 60 some odd legal actions. They lost all but one that was insignificant. In another way, what they tried to do was intimidate people into changing the votes, finding votes. That's the Fulton County case in Georgia, but there were similar instances in Arizona, et cetera. Then they came up with the fake electors scenario, and they had a bunch of 
people across the country helped them create this, this, these fake electors slates, go out there, put them in place. And it involved everybody from, you know, nobodies in Michigan to Senator Ron Johnson passing them on, right? Then they said, well, if none of these things are going to work, we'll get Mike Pence to just throw this thing back to the states, get us a little more time, or as Norm pointed out, helpfully, create some kind of crazy riot and invoke the Insurrection Act, which would buy them, buy them some time. I'm leaving aside, and I, I use the term advisedly in this context, the crazy ideas, the Mike Flynn idea, you know, the let's go to the military and get them to seize voting machines and, 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 and that kind of ideas, or Mark Esper writes, talks about staying in office because he was afraid they were going to deploy troops to, you know, influence the, the flow of voters. This is, is massive. Is it too big for the legal system to get its brain around a conspiracy like that? Is this one of these things where, you know, it's Al Capone and he's going down on, on a tax charge because, this is just it's it would take too much to prove all of this because the breadth of it seems significant to me. OK, so a lot there. I would say for a prosecutor, a very sort of practical nuts and bolts question is whether you conceptualize this as a series of conspiracies or one giant sprawling conspiracy with Trump sort of in the hub. I think the sort of normal default, but this is a question really of proof and strategy and jury appeal and just getting your hands around something, you would you would be looking at multiple conspiracies. And I actually had a very significant part of the hearing today. I, I had posited the existence for months, but we hadn't heard a peep about it of a sort of bridge conspiracy involving such ne'er-do-wells as Stone and Flynn, and they as a kind of bridge from, you know, the Jew, well, from the marauders themselves, Ali Alexander and others, to through Giuliani and up to the, the White House. So I, my, my response to you as a former prosecutor would be, while it's true that the story that the January 6th committee is telling is one that precedes the election and is a sort of any port in a storm that he can latch onto, including Eastman and Clark and the like. The charging is likely to be, you know, still fairly unwieldy, but more get your hands around individual conspiracies. Because remember, conspiracies are agreements to do something specific and unlawful, and then you take an act in, in advance of it. And the the sort of, you know, very amorphous, well, win the election, I think, is a, a less clear-cut conspiracy than submit false electors. Get the DOJ to, you know, you want, you want to anchor it to a solid kind of unlawful objective to win and then a um an overt act. So um, my answer is less a sort of moral, historical, political, which might well. You know, just as with Watergate, say it, you know, we we now combine it all with with Ellsberg stuff and and Nixon's general anger. Here we might feel the same thing about Trump, but I think as a matter of proof, 
it would be your, I think you gave me sort of an option of two things. It would be the second, meaning more discrete series of conspiracies rather than one enormous sprawling one. Yeah, and it could take forever because, you know, consistent with my personality, I, I kind of understated the breadth of this thing because I didn't get into, you know, the what was Roger Stone doing? What was Rudy Giuliani doing with the Proud Boys, with the Oath Keepers? The committee was. And I just want to say one thing about that. Trump told Meadows to call them on the fifth. Really big fact that came out today. Yeah, right. And but another big fact that came out today, Norm, and again, big picture question for you and then Dahlia and then we'll go to the close up question. But was at the very end and it was kind of a throwaway from Liz Cheney, which was various people who, you know, were speaking to the committee, said they were getting phone calls from people in the Trump campaign you know, which were the equivalent of the horses had seen and the Godfather, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, we know where you are. We know where you live. The president's going to be listening and, uh, you know, uh, do the right thing. That and, you know, witness tampering and obstruction of justice and all sorts of other things I didn't mention in this big picture. Uh, what's your, what's your reaction to how we as a country need to handle something of this scope? So I, I actually thought, as Liz Cheney was talking about that, that it's uh, fortunate uh, for today's witness that she's not an equestrian, or she might have found that horse's head in her bed before this. You know, Liz very carefully did not mention names, but it's pretty clear what the message was. First is they know who made these calls, and the latter one certainly appeared to be Trump, but there were others, and they know that if they made those calls, uh, that they're in big trouble themselves. They're still looking to get people to turn on Trump. And you're going to have a lot of people facing significant jail time who have every incentive to do so. And the more of them do, the more it will be damning for him. But I would also say, you know, in the larger picture, watching today, I was not just gobsmacked, but extraordinarily impressed yet again with the committee. They did this clearly on short notice. Everybody had to come back from their home districts, but it was the narrative. It was weaving in the videotape with her testimony. It was Liz Cheney walking through these various steps. They have done this brilliantly. And what I'm hoping is that at the end, they will do a hearing in prime time where they will pull it all together and show in a very compelling way why Americans need to view this as a five-alarm fire that could burn down everything we care about. And that, I think, is going to make it, among other things, easier for the Justice Department to go forward with the prosecution. We're already seeing the proportion of Americans who think that you ought to be held to account is inching up in the polls. And I think the committee has a great role here. But I would also add that the Justice Department very likely has a lot more powerful stuff that we don't know about. You know, Trump may have used the burner phones, but that doesn't mean all the people he was talking to were using burner phones. And some of those phones and other devices are in the hands of the Justice Department. They are probably going to be able not just to turn more people but my guess is they're going to be able to have a much more direct link to Trump orchestrating a lot of this 
in advance. And so the charges of seditious conspiracy and incitement to riot may get more powerful in the Justice Department, even then this incredible stuff that the committee did. So, you know, again, Dahlia, you know, forgive me for understating the scope of the crime because, you know, I've mentioned a few of the elements, but not the flip side of what Liz Cheney was talking about, which is people like Meadows and others got very nice gifts from Trump, jobs and money into foundations and stuff like that to keep them on the straight and narrow. And another of the stories here today was that, uh, you know, it was said that Meadows sought pardon and Giuliani sought pardon. And I haven't even, we, none of us have really gotten into the degree to which members of Congress have been involved in this thing. You know, Scott Perry was seen burning documents. And uh, I thought it was interesting that during today's hearing, the House Judiciary Committee was sending out little tweets saying, this is all you got. And I'm thinking, well, who's, you know, this is Jim Jordan. You know, this is another guy who's in the crosshairs actually sort of providing us with live commentary in this whole thing. So that, you know, the scope, you can pull the camera, but it's like that scene and gone with the wind and, you know, the, 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 the bodies in Atlanta and they keep pulling back further and further and there's more and more bodies. I think of this entire proceeding as the second impeachment done right. So, you know, what couldn't be proven at the second impeachment is now being, I think, meticulously chronicled and proven here. And one of the things that is so fascinating is the way they are showing consciousness of guilt at the highest levels, right? So this is Donald Trump wanting to have people with weapons because he believed he wasn't personally in harm's way, right? That's astounding. That's just astounding. It is astounding that Meadows and Giuliani and Eastman were asking for pardons because innocent people don't do that. And so I think one of the things that is really masterfully being told here is that you cannot disaggregate Trump and the incitement and the things he was doing and saying from this lawless mob and that it was just a coincidence that those two things happened together. What this has done is connected every piece of the causal chain between people at the highest levels who saw it happening, who either chose to do nothing or who chose to deflect or (laughs) who really just decided that they were going to sit on their couch and, and freak out. And I think the fact that that person sought a pardon, the fact that, you know, Pat Cipollone said, we are going to be on the hook for every kind of criminal liability, I think is really essential here because there's no more story of Donald Trump acting on one plane and this mob, you know, incited by the Proud Boys acting on another. These things were happening. They were connected. And they were, I think we're going to learn more and more as we learn about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. They were more and more intertwined. And the ability to just keep going up the chain and have that consciousness of guilt proven up, again, you're hearing the GOP say this is hearsay. It's not hearsay. She was in the room. Well, one thing that shouldn't be obscured here, Trump said Pence and I are on the same page before moving to turn uh, on Pence. And it was a conscious move to get that crowd even more incited against Pence. He's now betrayed me. And what we know now is 
Trump wanted Pence to be hanged. He was eager to see that happen. And that is not only beyond shocking, but look at what Mike Pence is doing now, saying nothing. He's in one of those categories that Dahlia mentioned after this guy wanted to see him lynched at the Capitol, refusing to turn against the president. Wow. One of the things that has made this hearing series of hearings so powerful is that there has always been a close up. It has always been about Donald Trump. This has not been about three levels down. And the image we got today was this is a Trump who makes John Gotti or Tony Soprano look like Dean Acheson, right? This guy is a thug and he, you know, throws plates at the wall in the White House and he manhandles his Secret Service staff and he says, yeah, Pence deserves to be hanged, as Norm just said, and, and stuff. But here's an image that, I, that lingers in my mind that didn't actually happen, but was clearly in Trump's mind. Harry, at that moment that Donald Trump had his hands around the neck of the Secret Service driver saying, you're going to take me to the Capitol, he knew the crowd was armed. He knew what the objective was. He knew who the targets were. What do you think he thought was going to happen? Talk about state of mind. Where do you think he was going to, you know, the guy was going to go, okay, boss, let's go to the Capitol. And what was he going to do? Walk in with a bunch of people with pikes and spears and AK-47s and Glocks in there and their and and walk into and do what? Hang Pence? What do you think, Harry? Okay, so you know, so this might be in the imponderable category, but and and but I think we're in 1933 territory, though I always try to resist that. I think. He had in mind some astonishing image where he, you know, he's got such sort of personal animus here. He really wants to show you screwed with me and now you're going to die. And I, I actually think he had some notion of going into the Capitol with his marauders behind him and just kicking ass in the actual chamber and showing them what for. Now, it seems astonishing beyond the the pale but everything that that he did we know was of a piece with that and he was so deeply distressed to learn that he couldn't go to the capitol so how can you not put this jigsaw puzzle together he knows not just they're armed but i mean he's seen them they're you know they're the guys with the horns and the glocks and the so he he knows they're uh, you know these absolute thuggish dangerous violent people he wants to be with them at the Capitol. He obviously wants to have the proceedings stop the way they did. So what does it mean? This is not beyond a reasonable doubt territory, but I think in his own twisted mind, he's somehow coming in on a wave of his people. These are his people and showing Congress what for, what, you know, what else could it be? And he, of course, wants it so dearly. So, you know, I think think that's his big revenge fantasy. But now we're in the, you know, I'm violating my own rule. I've never tried to psychoanalyze Donald Trump. I think that this whole presidency unfolded on the scene between two really different realities. And one was the clown car, Peter Sellers. The guy throws food. He tries to choke people, take him literally, but not seriously, or whatever that was, Kofeve. 
And then this other really dark, pernicious, existential threat to democracy. And I think one of the reasons we massively miscovered him in the press is because we were really enchanted and entertained by that WWF, super violent, male, aggro, it's not real, it's not true, it's fantasy. And I think that we had a really hard time living in the both of that. And that's because Donald Trump has a really hard time living in the both of that. I mean, he's just, he is both. It is both ridiculous clown car shenanigans and the most absolute fascist, authoritarian, violent existential threat. And so for me, I have no problem saying that I agree with Harry. I think he thought it was both. I think he both thought that this WWF smackdown was going to end in triumph with costumed warriors and him the hero of the day, and also that he was going to come out being the president for four more years. I really regret that James Gandolfini is no longer with us because I think he would have been the perfect one to play Trump in the miniseries. Second, the mainstream press corps has a lot to answer for here. And it's not just as Dahlia said, uh, that they were sort of intrigued by the WWF. They tried mightily over and over again to normalize utterly abnormal behavior. And they convinced a lot of Americans that this was nothing out of the norm. The culpability is very strong in a lot of the mainstream press, including the White House press corps. But I would just refine what Harry said. I think he had two things in mind. The first was he would go into the Capitol with the, this horde behind him and say to the members of Congress, these are very fine people who just want you to do the right thing. Now, if you do the right thing, they will applaud you. If you don't, I can't hold them back. It was to intimidate the Congress. And the second was, if that's not going to work, they've got the uh, ties and they have the other weapons. They're going to take Democrats. And basically what they'll do is they'll go after all the women because they know they're mostly Democrats and they will get them out of the chambers so that what's left would be able to vote to either accept his electors and make him president or at worst to have this whole thing postponed until after January 20th and then have the House come back and choose him because he'd get 26 states. He might well have just basically said, screw him, I'll let him go in and kill everybody and I'll be leading the mob. But I think it was the the latter two. And that's why he was desperate to get down there because he thought he could make this work for him. And it wasn't necessarily going to work for him if he wasn't able to go down to the Capitol. Well, we've just had three of the smartest people I know talk for 45 minutes about the hearings today, which only lasted themselves, you know, two hours. And we've just scraped the surface. We didn't talk about Mark Meadows being told that he was going to have blood on his hands. We didn't talk about, you know, the many levels of planning, how much foresight there was or the number of people who were telling Trump not to do this. There was a lot to unpack. And I think that's why this hearing is going to sustain a lot of thoughtful conversation for a long time to come. These guys will be back in a couple of weeks. I hope to talk to you guys in the interim because I am left with one more reality, which you all touched upon, and that is Trump can go to jail or not. The Roberts Court is going to be there for decades to come, and they are doing a lot to dismantle democracy, weaken the Constitution. And, you know, the Ron DeSantis presidency with the Roberts Court is not going to be a whole lot more agreeable than the Trump presidency. 
So there's a lot to lot to deal with here that isn't actually the case against Donald Trump. But for now, a great discussion. I am super grateful to each one of you. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Norm. Thanks to everybody for joining in. We'll be back with you again soon. In the meantime, take care of yourselves out there. Bye-bye.